Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. What is the state of the union? Has the American dream become an American carnage? The COVID-19 epidemic has laid bare many pre-existing fissures and deep distress in American society. Can the exhausted majority reassert itself through this crisis? Will the epidemic focus minds on a culture of competence and experience with regards to leaders and their teams and more generally organizations? Scott Miller, a leading American corporate and political strategist, Joshua Steiner, a US business executive and investor, and Alan Stoga, the chairman of the Talberg Foundation, discuss these and other questions in this podcast as they explore the potential impact of the current situation on longer-term trends shaping the U.S. My hypothesis is that the United States entered the age of COVID already in deep distress. Distrust of government, the opioid problem, stagnant wages, deaths of despair, uh, kids living with only one parent, uh, two out of three kids are not age proficient in reading. In other words, the American dream as nightmare. An alternative view is that the American dream is evolving from that traditional notion that you have to do better than your dad did to a situation where the dream is about the opportunity to do better, one that centers on liberty, on freedom, on nurturing community, one that is fundamentally optimistic. How do you guys see America? Not as much the coronavirus issue as underlying United States of America, the State of the Union today. Scott, do you want to start? Sure, Alan. I, I th- well, there are plenty of signs of distress, as you said. The suicide rate, you know, the the stagnation in, in the working class, middle class. Um, I, I'm I'm somebody who's studied change a little bit and believe in insurgency and love change. I love the molecules being in motion, and they're in motion now. I think we're in a great reconsideration. I call it. The, reset environment in which I think people will reconsider almost every relationship with the people you're locked up with, with your, you know, your company and your company's relationship with you, community, country, for that matter, and countries to other countries. All the countries are in lockdown too. So I do think there's a time for positive reflection. And I really agree with you that where the American dream was, was to do better than your dad. Um, the American dream now is to be happier than your dad. And that's terribly important. There's a great uh, piece of research from a company uh, project, I should say, called Hidden Tribes. It was part of a group called More in Common. And they have looked for a long time at, at, at the polarization in America. Polarization comes literally from being apart. Elites are as apart from most of us as anybody can be. So we kind of resent that distance and we kind of resent the fact that they can make decisions and we kind of assume that they are only taking care of themselves in those considerations that they make, which, you know, in our polling that we've done for the last 10 years called We Need Smith, we found that about 84, 85, and you name your year, uh, percent of American voters of all demographics and all per- political persuasions believe that an elite group of incumbent politicians of both parties, lobbyists, big banks, big unions, big business, 
big special interests and big media in Washington only acts to protect their own power and prestige. Now, this has the further benefit of being true. So, you know, people going for the axe handles and the, uh, and the pitchforks is not so unusual. What, what Hidden Tribes found, I was referring to their research, is that they see the great body of Americans, and I've seen this reflected in our research most recently, they call the exhausted majority. Uh, and and they, they draw a map of America with a peak, little peak on the left, little peak on the right, that you know express the extremes of political diatribe. Uh, unfortunately, those peaks have created the weather in the Great Valley, which is filled with the exhausted majority. And what I picture, and I, from our research as well, people so want out of this uh, poisonous dialogue that I, I picture kids up in a bedroom pulling the covers over their head, listening downstairs to their parents yelling and screaming and maybe throwing sharp objects at each other. And they just want to disappear. They want to get out the window. And that's the way most Americans are. They don't want to be a part of this. Um, and that's incredibly positive. So that so I, I see hopeful signs along with distress. And because change, I, I, the American people voted for change in every election in my lifetime, except when they've had an obvious incumbent to elect. They've always voted for change and they've always pulled the, the you know, only change option out of it. Um, so we'll see how that plays too. But Americans really accept change and they love choice. And so our political environment will always be volatile, I believe. Joshua, the American dream, how do you think about it? Well, first of all, it's nice of you to invite uh, me to do this. And I commend Talberg for trying to step back from the day-to-day -day politics and the minute-by-minute -minute actions that people are taking on the ground to think about some of the broader themes. You know, Warren Buffett has a great line, which he used in the context of investing, which is when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked. And I think to your point, Alan, there's a moment here where the tide has gone out and it's revealed deep fissures um, that Scott referred to in society and also deep institutional failings. Unfortunately, our government has failed to protect us from this kind of environmental problem. And I'd say environmental in the sense of the virus permeating every aspect of our lives. It's revealed deep disparities in health outcomes for Americans and particularly the suffering that's going on in the African-American community due to a prevalence of underlying conditions that's caused them to have that problem. And it's at its core, and I think it's something that you both referred to, it's forcing people to make a choice which is really outrageous for a society such as ours, which is to choose between feeding their families and protecting their health. Um, and it's just, it's unacceptable in so many ways that people are forced to make that choice, that in order to provide for their families, to feed themselves, to house themselves, they're being forced to put themselves in danger and are actually protesting because they feel that they have to choose um, their economic well-being. So that's probably where I agree with you. I probably don't agree with um, you both in one other respect, though, which is that choice between an economic well-being, the aspects of what has characterized our economic system in this country, and on the other side, I think what Scott um, described as a pursuit of happiness, or a little bit what you did, Alan, a prioritization of those kinds of emotional well-being factors. I don't think those are quite so diametrically opposed as maybe you suggested. I do think what you're seeing is a gradual shift um, and a reprioritization, especially among younger Americans, to step back 
and say that aspiration that had been presented to me as the most important thing, well, we know, in fact, it's not working particularly well for many Americans. It's not led to a system which is as just as it should be. And by the way, I'm not sure it's the most important thing in my life. I don't think those things, however, are completely diametrically opposed. Do you think Americans are by and large angry today, Joshua? Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of America that is angry. And I think the reality is a lot of America has a right to be angry. So um, let's just talk about the changes that have gone on in society, some of which I think are profound and which I think have justifiably led to concern. Everyone talks about globalization and what that's meant in terms of manufacturing jobs. I think most serious public policy experts, even those such as myself, who advocate ultimately for a lowering of trade tariffs and barriers and a greater harmonization across um, the world, recognize that that change took place way too rapidly for most Americans and without the kind of support that the government should have provided. Support in terms of not just retraining, but economic um, direct aid for communities that were hard hit about it. We made an assumption that by allowing China to join the WTO and encouraging them to do it, not just allowing them, that it would lead to them behaving better in the global marketplace. We were wrong in that assumption and we miscalculated. I think we underestimated the impact. So when people look at globalization, I think they are right um, to be angry because they were told that that globalization would ultimately lead to benefits. My belief is it will. And over time, my belief is societies do need to trade with each other and they should do it on a free market basis. But it happened way too quickly. And I think that was profoundly unfair. And similarly, if you look at educational outcomes, and I'll hear Scott's views on this, people look at um, the reports that the OECD um, puts out about where the United States ranks Um, in terms of educational achievement, um, and we generally rank right in the middle of those rankings. What's much less reported and I think profoundly more important is actually when you break those down by demographic groups. If you look at Asian Americans relative to other OECD countries, we rank near the top. Um, If you look at Massachusetts and we thought Massachusetts was a country instead of a state, it would be near the very top. Conversely, if you look at where African-Americans score in those, they would be near the bottom of the OECD rankings. And that's a result of profound and deep historical injustice against the African-American community, and we've done nothing to address it. So those are good reasons for people to be angry. I'm just picking two. Josh, I think you're right. There's an anger. Interestingly, in, in 2016, when we did our national polling, everybody obviously saw this explosion of interest in energy and Bernie on the left and Trump on the right. We looked at it more like a circle where the Bernie proponents and the Trump proponents were very almost shoulder to shoulder uh, in, in their dismay and anger and their sense of being left behind for different reasons and different issues, but very, very disgruntled. And it hasn't been, it's continued to grow, I should say. The alienation from government has continued to grow. The problem, if you're caught with this Hobbesian choice, you know, of you're going to have health care or you're going to have a place to live or you're going to have enough to eat, is that the American people don't trust government to manage any one of those three things. And they're pretty much uh, living up to that disgust, I should say the government is, and always does. It's a huge structural challenge. And... I, I keep assuming, I, I've, I think that in this reset environment, the, the fulcrum of all the decisions we're going to make about 
what's important or not is called essential, that word which has come up a lot in new relevance in this pandemic. And I think we're going to be deciding what's essential and, and rethinking what's essential. Now, companies are going to do that and decide that a third of their employees are not essential. And they will pay a better living wage to the essential, but then they're going to flood the market with non-essential, mostly people who were trained for service jobs, it, it, you know, that, that's going to call for incredibly big changes in, in thinking by government. My hope is that this new federalism will gain some kind of traction and we'll get some uh, 50 different answers to that, that terrible question. We're sitting at the start of what could make the Great Recession uh, look like a, a speed bump. We have forecasts what they're worth of 30% unemployment. We have the potential for absolutely massive dislocation in a world where we don't trust government. Do we worry about literally social unrest of the sort that we haven't seen in the United States for a long time? It's very easy to go to the place that you're describing, Alan, which is a understandable reaction from large numbers of Americans out of anger towards government and its failings, um, out of fear for their ability to provide for their families, out of um, real disgust with whether our healthcare system has failed them. That dark picture, I think, is relatively easy to paint. I am by nature an optimist, and I think the, the country's history has given us reasons um, to be optimistic. And so while that uglier side of what we all confront and the very real and profound problems that we face are worth discussing, I think it's also worth thinking about some of the things that may be cause for a slight bit more optimism. So what do I mean by that? Um, both at the federal and the state level, while I think we can all agree that their preparation um, for this pandemic was poor and the reactions to it have been at best spotty, there are aspects of the government's response which have been far more rapid and more comprehensive than anything that we've seen really since the Great Depression. If you compare it to the Great Recession and the amount of stimulus that the government provided, roughly $800 billion, we forget that, in fact, um, that bill failed for the first time when it went before Congress and only actually got passed the second time. Most economists would now say that, that while it was quite meaningful and give a lot of credit um, to President Obama and to Treasury Secretary Geithner, um, most economists, I think, would say that the stimulus was too small, that the country actually didn't um, arrive at a solution that was proportionate to the scale of the problem that we faced. In contrast, we're now discussing already the fourth round of stimulus that the federal government might provide. There are lots of reasons um, to be annoyed with exactly how it was structured. There are real inequities in terms of where it's gone, in terms of the companies that it's been provided to first. But nevertheless, it was a quite meaningful reaction on the part of the federal government. And then if you go to the state and local levels, we're seeing real signs of leadership. Um, from governors and mayors in terms of those responses, and a profoundly different approach to the expectations of what government's role in society should be. Um, the reasons that they are doing that are obvious. The concerns that you express, I think, are the underlying root of their willingness to explore things they never would have considered um, as recently as three months ago. You have Republicans voting for wholesale forms of federal support for businesses massive amounts of unemployment funding. You have the Federal Reserve buying securities, which were really unimaginable just a few months ago. And by the way, were unimaginable even in the context of the Great Recession. 
So those things that the federal government, state government, and local government are willing to do, the Federal Reserve are willing to do, I hope are signs, in fact, that we may be beginning to see some changes in attitude about the responsibility of government towards its citizens. Scott and Josh, you've both talked about state and local leadership. You've both talked about federalism. We are obviously a federal system, which most of the rest of the world doesn't understand. Would you argue, Scott, that the odds of federalism coming out of this strengthened, a new pact between Washington and the states, could be one of the upsides? A new pact between the states and the citizens would be important, and then, you know, which would lead to a new pact between Washington and the states. I'm an optimist like Josh, I mean, maybe even more so. I really do have great hope. The American people are incredibly resilient. I interview people. And, you know, particularly coming out of the 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, and they would say, I'd say, how are you doing? They would all say, better than most. And I said, well, tell me more. Well, daughter uh, moved back in with the, our son-in-law and their baby, and, and we're, we're there. And, I, you know, I lost my job 18 months ago. My wife lost her six months ago. Um, but we're getting by and we're doing okay. And I know one thing, I'll never work with a big company again. And I'll say, well, how much, give me an idea, what'd you make last year? Oh, 25,000. And, you know, I would have no idea how to comprehend or deal with that, but they got by. And so there's a, a natural resilience. It's probably true in all humankind, but, but I'm certainly aware of it in America. So, and they have grit. And as Josh said, they have this ability to, change. So people are moving very quickly to new options. They still don't trust government. And I think there is, however, this growing, what I call the culture of competence. There's this incredible respect for people who actually can do things really, really well. Not all the EMS workers, not all the people who are in the ambulances and on the front lines, but a lot of them. They're so good at what they do. There's plumbers, and welders and stuff that we see in our everyday life that are just so good at what they do. It's just stunning. And then we, so I think this idea of competence may begin to change local and state elections before it changes the national election. Our, our national elections are still warped by, um, by campaign finance, even more so than the, than the, you know, I mean, certainly the congressional elections are because they've been rigged. And certainly the national election, because it's been rigged by the by stupidity, but local elections haven't, and I and I have some great hope for that. That people will be putting competence in there, along with other attributes, you know, nice hair and uh, good presentation skills, but not so much identity as capability. So I'm I'm very optimistic about about people moving in that direction, which then will say, if we had fifty. Gavin Newsom. I mean, I thought Gavin Newsom was a, you know, I thought he was sort of a handsome game show host when he was elected governor of California. And he's done a very, very good job. Several governors have and and several haven't. Uh, And I think it's a great experiment to see 50 different kind of economic plans, maybe 400 mayors. I remember when the president pulled us out of the Paris, you know, environmental accords the uh, global warming accords, 400 mayors stayed in, which meant America stayed in, like it or not. I, anyway, I think the propositions 
are changing somewhat. I think because confidence is going to be so important that it'll put a new value on it. I don't. It won't affect the national race for a while to come, but it, it will on a local level, I believe. In the middle of this crisis, we suddenly see scientists sitting next to governors, sitting next to a president, sitting next to prime ministers around the world, apparently with their advice being taken, considered, uh, in some cases driving outcomes. Josh, is this one of the potential upsides, Scott's competence, my hope for expertise to be brought back into, in a substantial way, political decision-making? One would certainly hope so, and I completely agree with you that the term expert has been pilloried somewhat, um, and I think somewhat understandably, partly because in certain fields, it's very difficult, in fact, to be an expert where your predictions turn out to be true. Economics probably being the best example, and people, I think, have been understandably cynical about the ability of economists to accurately predict not only the direction of the economy, but the steps most likely to lead to a better outcome. And that has led, as you said, to a certain degree of cynicism. In the United States, we're characterized by administration, probably, which has a higher degree of cynicism, skepticism about expertise than any in recent memory. So my hope is exactly to your point, um, that the scientists um, who were fired from this administration will ultimately find a home back in the administration and give them advice. So that would clearly be one potential upside associated um, with this crisis. I think there's another, though, and it goes a little bit to Scott's point. I think what we're finding is that the people and the companies, the organizations that are best capable of surviving this and ultimately providing either services in the case of government or employment for the sake um, in the case of um, companies or services to their communities in the case of NGOs are those which do have strong leadership, as Scott suggested, and Gavin Newsom would be a good example, but have also built really strong teams. Um, and so I think the, the larger point around yours, Alan, about the importance of expertise and scientists is you actually need a mix of people, some of whom bring very um, clear and academically grounded theoretical expertise. Those would be people like epidemiologists in the context of this crisis. But you also need people who have the confidence of the leaders, have the ability to implement change and who are very action oriented. And it's that group of people um, who come from a diverse set of skills, ideally a diverse set of backgrounds, who are best able to handle any crisis. And I think that's one of the very clear points that were coming out of this. And the second one, I think I would say, in addition to the one that you made, is about the culture of organizations. That this is, in many ways, a very important test as to the strength of the culture of a company or an NGO or an administration. Those cultures which were built on very clear communication, where honesty is at a premium, where truth arrives at the desk of the CEO or the head of state, um, where people feel confident in their ability to express themselves and to work clearly with each other. Those are the organizations which are clearly going to come out of this in the strongest position. You can't work remotely and do everything over Zoom unless you actually trust your colleagues, have the ability to speak openly with them, the ability to understand their perspectives, um, and create an environment which is inclusive about those different points of views. I think there's another positive, I agree with what Josh is saying, of exposing the public to these experts, the virologists, epidemiologists, and public health experts who are flanking the governors and mayors, and, and thank God the president. Um, it is that we are exposing them to the people. One of the things that the Hidden Tribes research found, they looked at where people get their information, and obviously we get a lot of information from our peer group and who's around us. And what they found was that progressive activists with advanced degrees essentially have no contact 
with anyone else who is not a progressive activist with an advanced degree. And that shielding, it's natural. And the same thing's probably true of the rednecks in, in Rabin County. But the fact that we're seeing these teams that Josh refers to and seeing them interacting, even seeing the president pay attention to them, who doesn't seem to pay attention to anyone but himself, there are people who do have contact with the public all the time. So they kind of know who's out there, which is great. So I think that's increased, you know, Tony, Tony Fauci and Dr. Burks, Deborah Burks, it's just, it, it's great to hear them talk because not only are they experts, but they get it. They know what we're, you know, they can talk about, no, can your pet get it? Yes. Can you get it from your pet? No. I mean, you know, those are important considerations to, to, uh, to ordinary people. And they need to know that, that the experts can think in ordinary terms. It's, it's a, that's a big step for me. Just to build on one point that Scott was making, I think it's also the combination of expertise and experience. Because to Scott's point, there's a history, unfortunately, of too many experts speaking only to themselves and having no experience translating what they have to say, or equally importantly, inspiring others to listen to them. So Dr. Fauci's real skill here is not only his decades of knowledge, but his understanding of how administrations actually work and the motivations of politicians. There is no way he would be as successful if we had just plucked a leading epidemiologist or virologist out of a leading university and asked her to advise the president. She would be unfamiliar with the way Washington works. She would be unfamiliar with the motivations that drive politicians. She would be unfamiliar with the likely political dynamics within the White House. And as you said, the two leading voices on this are leading not just because of their technical expertise, but also their political expertise. And it's that marriage, I think, that's so important and so effective. Heretofore, we've lacked a shared national narrative for some time. It's the how we get our information. It's social media. It is the multiplication of sources. It's the destruction of expertise. Now, all of a sudden, we have the same problem. We're looking to the same sources for information, mostly. Is it possible that we come out of this in a funny way? with that shared experience, a bit like the wars, a bit like the depression, that makes us more of a united people, more able to act together in coherent and indeed perhaps effective ways. Is there an upside to the pandemic in that sense? I, as I said before, I'm really an optimist and I would like to believe it. I guess on this point, Alan, I'm a little bit more skeptical. And I think of this, unfortunately, is a little bit closer to Vietnam than I do in World War II. And what do I mean by that? There's a statistic which is directionally correct, if off by a little, which is, I think, more people from Roxbury, which is a low-income, predominantly African-American neighborhood outside of Boston, died during the Vietnam War than Harvard graduates did. And why is that indicative? It was indicative of the fact that Vietnam War, among the ways it divided this country, is it divided it quite profoundly over race and over income. And as a result, people's perception of Vietnam differed. I think, unfortunately, the pandemic may have some of those same qualities. Um, if you look at the impact of the pandemic um, by socioeconomic group, by race or ethnicity, I think the outcomes are going to feel quite different. And so as a result, I think it's more that the pandemic is highlighting a series of structural inequities that have existed. So when I have optimism about it, it's less that people look back and think to themselves, I went through this shared experience 
and I have a commonality with people because I think people are experiencing this quite differently based on their economic um, levels and more that the solutions to it and the ways we went about solving it as a result of this terrible incident are ones which are fundamentally and profoundly, hopefully beneficial to addressing a series of problems that have existed for far too long. Why, what worries you most that we might get wrong and hence, if we think about it, we'll get it right. Josh? I'd probably just reiterate what I had said before, which is that if we think of this as an isolated problem and we think of this as simply a failure to address a profound and important public health crisis, we are unlikely to come out of this as a nation stronger. We need to look back and think about what this pandemic has exposed about us. And then I agree with Scott's point, which is this is a moment for institutions, whether they are government or nonprofits or corporations, to think about what they have learned about their culture, their mission, the way they interact with other organizations, the way they treat their employees. And if they don't use this as an opportunity to evolve in some quite profound manner, it will be a lost opportunity and probably ultimately a sign of their failure. I guess my observation is those who, who are waiting to get back to normal are totally screwed. Those who expect a new normal will be behind the curve. And those who expect a new different will, will be the ones who have a chance. And I think, so I think the one area where the biggest change could be affected positively is education. When we begin to wise up about what a college education is and what, how we can educate people to be productive for themselves, to be, have, have stronger economic immune systems for themselves and their community and their family. Uh, fortunately, at least as a country and enough people, we went into this rich. So we have a chance to, to rethink in a positive direction. Education is the place I'd love to see it really addressed most. Thank you very much. Let's hope we're all right. And let's hope we're all right. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening. Please check www.talgrecfoundation.org for more podcasts, videos, and articles. And follow us on social media to stay tuned to upcoming events. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.